You guys sounded good. Oh, even better than 9 o'clock. Uh, I see no one has said on the front row out of the spit zone, so well done. I can get fired up, and people are like, do you know how much you spit? Thank you for that. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for that. Well, my name is uh, R.D. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and great to be with you. And I want to start with a uh, question this morning. If Jesus were here in the flesh, which would be quite exciting, uh, and he could teach you one thing, what would you want that one thing to be? There's one thing about the Christian life, not necessarily how to fix a car, though that would be awesome, and he would do it. But the Christian life, and uh, I was thinking it would be awesome if Jesus could teach me uh, how to turn uh, water into wine, or fruit juice, whatever you want to say, right? If he could do that, that would be a pretty sweet party trick, right? I'd be invited to all the parties, like, bring our D. We don't really like him, but he can turn water into wine, so that would be, right? Or maybe you could multiply, like, bread, except for me, it might be tacos, like, I have one taco, and then I'm like, you know what, I don't need more tacos, but I want more tacos. So Jesus taught me, right, we had a great class on um, how to multiply tacos and Dr. Pepper, right? That would be my kind of, oh, I'm so hungry. Okay, that is good. <laughs> One time, it is 11. Let's just pray. Let's go. And that would be awesome. Uh, you know, maybe like a class on how, how might things end, like eschatology, this big word about the study of last things. Uh, we know it will end well for those who are in Christ, but what does that mean? Help me. Like, I, would, I would like my class like on the book of Revelation, like help me, Lord, what is happening? What is going to happen? That would be a class. Teach me about this. And then he would teach and be like, fantastic, thank you. Like, what would that one thing be? Well, the disciples uh, only asked Jesus to teach them one thing in all the Gospels. I mean, Jesus taught everything, obviously. He taught many things, but the disciples only asked him to teach them one thing. And it was simply this, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. They could have asked for anything, and yet they thought and sensed that this thing that Jesus continues to do over and over again feels like it's the power for all of his life. And I can assure you as well that prayer is the most important thing in your life. And yet for most of us, we don't do it or we feel guilty about it or we aren't sure what to do or we do it before meals sometimes, right? Or Thanksgiving or when we're with other people who pray more, right? But by and large, we aren't tapping into the power that is available to us through prayer. And so you and I need the same type of uh, teaching. Lord, teach us how to pray in our time. And I tell you this, that, that a, a vibrant, healthy prayer life, even one where you're still not always sure what's happening, is absolutely central to joy in your life. Without it, you are disconnected from the vine. You are disconnected from the vine. And so to look at, to look at what prayer is, we want to go to Jesus that taught us how to pray. And so the Lord's Prayer from Luke chapter 11, we continue to roll through the book of Luke. And so Luke chapter 11, where we come to a prayer that I, I'm sure many of you prayed growing up. And I grew up in the Episcopal Church where we would say this prayer uh, all the time. And I didn't have any idea what it meant, you know, hallowing and, and trespasses. And I don't, people just said it, so you felt like you should say it too. Right? And we said it earlier. And so we want to break it down. What does it mean? Why is this, of all the things Jesus could say, why did he say these things? Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, not if you pray, not if you feel like praying, not, okay, get perfect and then maybe you can pray, but when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. This is how you should 
pray. So we want to just look at it line by line by line and kind of see that this prayer is pregnant with power, right? It's pregnant with possibility to connect you to Jesus and transform your heart and your life. So we begin with the first word, Father. Matthew's version says, our Father. It's the same idea, Father. And Jesus here is not using a formal name for Father. He doesn't begin the Lord's Prayer saying, um, mighty God, strong God, Yahweh, though he could, and that's not a wrong way to pray to God, but he uses an Aramaic word, which is kind of the the street-level language of first-century Palestine, and he says, basically, Abba. It's the Aramaic word, Abba, like Dada. Talk about an informal word. My girls, the first word that they said, my, uh, the, the twins, the first word that they said was dada. And my wife told me that was because it's easier to say than mama. That's why they said dada first. Okay, fair enough. Maybe, maybe not. I think it's scientifically true. But details, details. It felt great. Now they no longer say it, so I'm unsure what has happened. But for a moment, it was the first word that they said, and they said it for a while, and I would come home from work, and they'd say, Dada, and then they run. Well, they wouldn't really run because they weren't really walking, but they'd crawl over and then kind of like fall, and I'd go grab them, and it was just this like awesome, like they knew who I was, and they didn't say, hello, Father, how was your day? It was just the first thing they knew was Dada, right? And it's the same word here. This is like, the, like Jesus is saying basically Dada, Daddy. He isn't just talking formally, he's talking intimately because he has this relationship. And so Jesus is modeling this prayer for us, saying this is how you should begin your prayers with this intimacy. And actually, in the world today, in four countries today, children still use the word Abba, still use the word Abba first, right? They still learn this word first. It's the first word that they learn in Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. The first thing they'll ever say is Abba to their father, right? picks them up, holds them. And this is what Jesus says. Why begin the prayer with Father? Because when you begin to pray to God, when you're praying to God, when you say Father, the second you say Father, you are soaking the entire prayer in grace. Because the only way that God can be called Father is if you are his son or his daughter by grace. And so when you say Father, the second you even say it, all the implications of fatherhood and you being a daughter or a son are there when you commune with God. Because you and I do not become children by merit or by effort or by how good we are, but by God's grace. And he has adopted us into his family, put the spirit of God into us that we could cry out, Abba, that's Galatians chapter 4. And so now you and I can pray to God, begin all of our prayers saying, Father, and rest in that word. That he hears us, that he knows us. The intimacy of that is profound. And no other religion can you approach God in that way. And the only way that we can approach God in that way is because of the work of Jesus on the cross. The Lord's Prayer begins drenched in grace. John Calvin says, by the great sweetness of this name, Father, he frees us from all distrust. Right? There are two ways to approach God, in fear and trembling, because you think you're not good enough, or you think you have to measure up. Or as a father, when you know you don't measure up, but he still loves you anyway. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. Jesus says, start praying like this, our Father. Hallowed be your name. Now, I know for many of you, you used, you used the word hallowed this week. I know you did. How many of you used hallowed this week? Show of hands. You did? Okay, awesome. Fantastic. Great. We have, we, I don't feel you would. Yeah, that's just how you talk. I know. But for most of us, we just use normal words, Okay. And uh, it's not one that's common. In fact, it, it just translates to holy. And we don't use that word very much. And sometimes talking about God, we do. And so there's this sense when you're reading the Lord's Prayer and you're thinking, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. When we pray that your name be holy, you're thinking, well, isn't God's name already holy? 
So how are we making it holy if it's already holy? And Martin Luther, a man much wiser, wiser than I, also had that thought. And so this is his commentary uh, from Tim Keller's book on prayer, this part of the prayer. He says, what are we praying for when we ask that his name become holy? Is it not holy already? Then Tim Keller comments. He immediately answers, of course it is holy, but that in our use of it, his name is not kept holy. Luther points to the fact that all baptized Christians have God's name put upon them. As name bearers, right, we bear the name of God. They represent a good and holy God. And so we are praying that God keep us from dishonoring the name by which we are called and that he would empower us to become ourselves good and holy. This is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, that God's name would be holy. It already is holy. You and I, in a sense, cannot take away from its holiness. It exists as set apart and holy and majestic all in of itself. God does not need us to make his name holy. It already is holy in by itself because of who he is. And yet at the same time, because those of us in Christ now bear the name of God upon us, other people can look and see and savor the holiness of God by the way in which the church conducts herself and by the way in which we conduct ourselves. God is holy. God is both a father and gracious and kind and intimate. He's also holy and immense and majestic and powerful. And so we want to hallow his name. But remember how the prayer begins with father. And so there's intimacy that's in, uh, brought with immensity. And these things hold together through Jesus, right? He's the one that holds these things together. And so we're praying, God, would your name be holy in my heart, holy in our city, holy among the nations? Would people hallow it? In the Hebrew, name is not just like um, kind of your actual name. In, in the Hebrew and in the uh, kind of the first century especially, your name was your entire character and nature. It was everything about you. Your name signified who you were. And so as we hallow the name of God, we hallow everything that he is, everything that he's done, his character and his nature. And you and I can only do that if we actually know his name and trust his name. Otherwise, we're just hallowing someone we don't actually know. And so the prayer begins with power, father, intimacy, hallowed be your name, immensity. Petition number two, your kingdom come. Now, I used, to, I used to think when I would uh, pray this that, uh, no, Jesus notes in Matthew in a Sermon on the Mount that we're praying, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And I, I used to think, well, God just needs to uh, save us and rapture us from this decaying earth and take us up to the sky where we can just live with Jesus and play harps forever. Like, which never sounded fun, but I thought that's what we were going to do, right? This world is dying and decaying. Let's get out of it, right, before it just kind of blows up and let Jesus take us off to that better place. And yet what we see in this prayer is the exact opposite. Jesus says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I, I'm fairly certain he means like now. Like, would your kingdom come now? Would, would the kingdom actually invade our hearts now? And when you hear kingdom, you probably think castles and, right, you think moats and all those things. Um, but actually, the kingdom of God is simply this. It's the rule and the reign of God over and through all things. It's the way of God, the shalom of God that pervades everything in our lives. That is what Jesus is praying would happen on earth. And so with the arrival of Jesus, we have that. It's like, it's like um, uh, D-Day, right, June 6, 1944, when the Allied troops landed on Normandy beaches and all the beaches. Right? That was the beginning of the end. And as they marched toward, across Europe, they provided more and more freedom as there was liberation upon liberation. But they weren't at V-Day when it was D-Day, right? Those are two separate days. And you and I very well know that we live in between these days, don't we? Look at your heart, look at the world, look at the nations, read a paper. 
The kingdom is here, and yet the world is still broken. So what is happening? Because we live between the already and the not yet. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Jesus has come. He has landed. D-Day has come and surprised everyone on Christmas. And yet now we are on the march towards greater freedom and greater liberation through the church, not by our power, but by the power of the Spirit working in us to bring the rule and the reign of God on our city, among the nations, in our hearts, and in our world. This is a radical part of the prayer. It's not just saying your kingdom come and then let me sit on my couch and let me watch Netflix, right? But I want your kingdom to come I just don't want to do anything about it, right? Because this world's going to blow up and it doesn't matter. Well, that's not true. This world does matter. This earth does matter, right? Because we see in Revelation 21 and 22 that we have a new heaven and a new earth where everything here is redeemed and renewed by God's good graces. And so we both want to pray this prayer and then live this prayer. It actually be people who embody this prayer. God, would you help us be people who live in between D-Day and V-Day? Because we can see the world is broken, but we know that victory is coming. We know that Jesus will return, and so we're praying, would your kingdom come now, both here in our hearts, and one day would it come fully, and would the kingdom of God fill the land as the waters cover the sea? This is a radical prayer. This is a daily prayer, and so we don't lose heart when we see the brokenness of the world because we know we're not there yet, but we also have hope because we know Jesus is with us on our way there. Your kingdom come N.T. Wright says this about this part of the prayer. He says, as we pray this for the world, your kingdom come, we also pray this for the church. But this cannot simply mean that we want God to sort out our messes and muddles so the church can be a cozy place without problems or pain. We can only pray this prayer for the church if we are prepared to mean make us kingdom bearers. Make us a community of healed healers. Make us a retuned orchestra to play the kingdom music until the whole world takes up the song. Let us pray every single day, Father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, in our hearts, in our city, and among all the peoples of the world. Petition number three, give us each day our daily bread. Bread in the Middle East is the staple food. Uh, very much so in the first century, still today. It represents both literally what you eat and also metaphorically uh, how you are sustained. So for us, this kind of gets lost because do you buy, buy bread just for the day? No, it's a good deal. You can buy bread for like a month almost, right? Bread seems to be getting like longer and longer. You can have it, right? It's like, this bread is good till like July. How is that even possible? <laughs> Should I even eat this bread? It's like, I'm just going to eat it because it says it. So I trust the date, right? And we have, we have bread. We have our, our food is stocked in our house. And that makes us very unusual for most of the world because most of the world doesn't have that. And so in this prayer, though, Jesus is, is saying, would you pray for your, your daily needs, your bread, water, breath, your heartbeat that is given to you by God, that God would supply all the things that you, you need. See, in the first century, people would bake bread just for the day. And when the day was over, the bread wasn't used anymore. And so they would feel the punch of this, that God would provide like he did manna in the wilderness for the people of Israel. He would provide every day for them. And God did provide every day for them what they needed, not always what they wanted. Those can be two different things. Those are two different things. I was reading an interesting commentary on this passage, and uh, it was talking about the Greek word here. So we're going to do a little Greek, so get excited. I know you're excited. Give us each day our daily bread, how redundant that it is. It's saying, give us each day our bread for today. And most translators translate this word daily. If you look, it says, give us each day our daily bread. The word daily there is a Greek word which occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. And most translators translate it meaning time. So give us today the bread that we need for today, which is not a wrong way to translate it. But there's a great 
comment here that I thought was interesting that says it actually probably means more than that. A way to translate it could be this. Father, give us today the bread that doesn't run out. And that this is a petition both to deliver us bread and all that we need and also to deliver us out of fear that we will not have enough bread and that God will not meet all of our needs. God, give us provision of bread today and give us the confidence that bread will be here for tomorrow. And now bread for us is meaning anything that God will provide for us. And so we can doubt God, right? We can think that, that um, in our lives we have just this kind of existential fear that, that something will happen, right? In our house or, or medical bills or in our family and the security that we have will go away. We won't have enough to provide, right? This paycheck has to come in. This money has to come in. We need this for most of us to make these ends meet. And we can spend most of our lives just in fear, and so when we're saying, God, thank you for the bread today, we're actually, though, living in great fear that God actually will not provide for us. And so Jesus is saying here, no, 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 it's not just praying for your bread for today. It's praying out of the fear that God is not good and God will not provide everything that you truly need, which ultimately is him. Everything else is just bonus. It's just fluff. This is a very powerful prayer. God, give us today the bread that doesn't run out. Help our hearts and our mind be at peace that today and tomorrow you will provide for us everything that we need, not everything that we want. Martin Luther, the great reformer, sees some amazing social dimensions to this part of the prayer. That it's, it's not just praying for, Lord, give me today my daily bread, right? What does Jesus say? He says, give us today our daily bread. He says, you can be praying it vertically that God will provide for you, but you also have to look at society and say, where are people not receiving bread, not receiving water? You cannot just pray this prayer and say, Lord, thank you for giving it to me. I'm sorry people are suffering, but it is what it is. No, no, no. It's our bread, right? It's our world. Martin Luther says, we want to create a just society where everyone can share and break bread together, where there's, where there's food for everyone, where there's water for everyone. That's what we want to be about. When we're praying the kingdom would come, that everyone we have access to bread and to water, to things that they need to survive and to thrive on. Mother Teresa, in her book, The Joy of Living, recounts this comment from someone who came to their, um, their home, uh, their complex in Calcutta, India, and there's some commentary at the end. But Teresa writes, she says, I will never forget the night an old gentleman came to our house and said there was a family with eight children, eight, eight children, and they had not eaten. And could we do something for them? So I took some rice and went there. The mother took the rice from my hands and she divided it into two and went out. I could see the faces of the children shining with hunger. When she came back, I asked her where she'd gone. She gave me a very simple answer. They were hungry also. And they were the family next door and she knew that they were hungry. I was not surprised that she gave, but I was surprised that she knew. I had not the courage to ask her how long her family hadn't eaten, but I am sure it must have been a very long time, and yet she knew in her suffering. In her terrible bodily suffering, she knew next door that they were hungry also. And then Ken Bailey commentates. He says, this woman with eight children may not have known the Lord's prayer, but there was only our rice, not my rice. Even when her children were hungry, the prayer for our bread includes our neighbors. It is our Father, and it is our bread. Father, give us today bread that will not run out, and help us be people who create a world where everyone has access to bread, and where we are people who point the way to the bread of life. Jesus says, for the bread of God 
is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread, this daily bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Father, give us today bread that will never run out. Petition number four. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now, we want to be clear. When God adopts you into his family by an act of grace through nothing that you do, you are forgiven past, present, and future sins. But remember the story of the prodigal sons where uh, the, the, the younger brother goes off and just, just kind of goes prodigal? And he comes home, and he's going to repent and confess his sins to his father. And so he's coming back remorseful because he wants to be united to his father again. Father, forgive me. And yet even before he can say any of that, what's the father doing? The father is running to meet him. And so when we're praying, God, forgive us our sins, we're humbling ourselves. But not in a way to beat ourselves up, to remind ourselves just how terrible we are. Because we began the prayer with Father. And so the Father is running towards us and inviting us to repent and confess. That is a healthy part of a prayer life. If you are not confessing and repenting of your sin, right, not not so that God will love you, but because God has loved you, things are going to get crazy. Right, oftentimes meet Christians who are new Christians, they say, man, I feel like I'm sinning a lot more now. Right? I'm like, no, you're just aware of it more. Right, the point is not that you necessarily sin less, but that you are repenting and confessing more out of grace, and out of the gospel. Jesus says the way to joy is to humble yourself and say every day, things that we've done, things that we left undone are not sufficient. Father, forgive us. As David says in Psalms, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Not my, I already have my salvation. Restore to me the joy of it. When, when you invite God to forgive you, you're reminded he already has because of what Jesus has done. And your heart is stirred and not guilty because you messed up again. You always will. And yet he's calling us, Father, forgive us our sins every single day. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. I grew up in the Episcopal Church where we would say, forgive us our trespasses for those who trespass against us. And I remember always thinking, no one is trespassing on our land. I don't know why we're praying this prayer. Maybe like back in the day, people would like just take land from each other. And so I'm not even sure. And so I would just say it for years and years. And I'd be like, I never asked anybody. I didn't know. I was like, I guess if somebody comes on our land, we forgive them and maybe give them some stuff. I don't know if that will ever happen. And I just didn't even know, right? And it means trespasses in obviously a much, much deeper sense than that. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Jesus did not say we forgive everyone who sins against us when they ask us to or when they deserve it. Is that, wait, wait, no, no, (laughs) no, just making sure the Greek had not, like in the bottom there, no, 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 right, because it's not about the person deserving forgiveness or not, because you and I didn't deserve forgiveness, yet Christ forgave us. And so that's why we begin saying, Father, forgive me of my sins. Get me in a place where I remember it's all mercy, it's all grace, it's all love. So then when I think of people that I don't have those feelings towards, I can be actually soft and move toward them. It doesn't mean you forget. It doesn't mean you wipe away pain or, or misery and just say, well, it doesn't matter. People can just trample all over me. No, of course not. But it does mean there is no future for humanity if we cannot forgive each other and be reconciled to each other. The church has to be this beautiful community, this city on a hill, this kingdom within a kingdom of a forgiving people that say everyone in here, I want to bust your bubble. Well, actually I do. Everyone in here is sinful and broken. 
And how else could we actually get together and do this crazy thing called church unless we actually forgave each other? Unless we actually said, you know what, you got some junk, I got some junk, let's get on the table and let's pray for God's mercy over all of it. Otherwise, we just have all this conflict. Marriage, church, all these things that we don't say, you know what, you don't deserve this, but I didn't deserve it either. And so I just want to forgive you that we could be closer. Jesus says every single day, look outwards towards people that you can forgive. And you know what? If it was easy, we'd all do it. And if it was easy, he wouldn't say you had to do it. It's about your heart. Are you willing to forgive the worst in people? Because Jesus Christ is the one who forgave all the sins in us. And all the trespasses are ultimately against him. The final petition is this, and lead us not into temptation. Matthew follows up, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. What is the temptation? I think, well, there are many things, but I just boil it down to this. The temptation that lurks beneath other, all other temptations is simply this. To not trust in the goodness of God. That's the lie in the garden. It's the lie. If you look at every single sin in your life or in the Bible, what, what is underneath all of it is that we do not trust in the goodness of God. And so we're tempted by other things to make us happy, to bring us pleasure, right? To fill us with joy, right? And those are the things that are actually can become our gods. And so Jesus is saying, pray that you would not be led in your time of testing to forget me, right? Because when you go through suffering or pain or brokenness, you can get bitter and angry towards God because you know, I didn't think my life was going to end up like this. I thought if I prayed and went to church, these good things would happen to me. And so I'm suffering and I'm in pain. And in that moment of temptation to doubt the goodness of God, Jesus says, do not doubt the goodness of God. He is for you. Everything happening in your life is for a good purpose. Do not forget. That's a test. Uh, another side of the test is when things go well for you, when you're blessed by God. You're in a great season, Right? It's easy to forget God in that moment. How often do we pray when things are going well for us? Not often. And that basically reminds us that we think by our own effort, we've achieved all this blessing in our life. Right? Prayer is a continual assault against self-sufficiency. And to not pray is to say, I made my life. I provide my bread. I am the king of my kingdom. I forgive who I want to forgive, and it's all about my happiness. Jesus says, that's the way to death. That's the way to be seduced by the enemy, where Satan is always saying it's a little bit better over here. God doesn't have his best for you. He said you can eat from that tree. That's because he doesn't care about you. I say you can do whatever you want. Jesus says pray every single day for protection from the evil one, and we're thankful that Jesus conquered Satan, and he keeps us safe from him ultimately. And the Holy Spirit that he gives to us gives us the power to fight against the enemy, not in our effort, by his power. And lead us not into temptation. There you go, 27 minutes. There was the Lord's Prayer. So much more we could say. I know. Um, I left so much on the cutting before. I learned so much uh, this week. And you know, this is not the only way to pray, but it is a great shape for your prayer life to take. Right? This is, this is in, in all the ways we should pray, we should pray parts of this prayer, always beginning it with Father. And so if you're like, I don't even know how to begin praying, pray, pray this maybe. Maybe pray this prayer over your life. Meditate on it. But can you imagine the disciples are like, teach us how to pray, and Jesus is like, all right, I'm going to teach you. And then they get out their stuff to write with, which they probably didn't have, but go with me. They get their things to write with, and Jesus is like, our Father. And by the time they've written the first word, he's done. Right? This prayer takes 20 seconds to say. That's a short class, right? Okay, Father, God, 
Amen. Uh, Jesus, we are not as smart as you. <laughs> Please, just tell us something. And so then he tells them a parable. He tells them a story. Because you and I, just like them, we need help. And Jesus is gracious to help. Verse 5. Then Jesus, he's still teaching on prayer. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. There we have bread again. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one who inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. We're asleep. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So he tells the story. And this is, this is kind of the point of the first, the first parts of parable. And in the first century, they didn't have three, four bedroom houses. They had one bedroom houses and they had bigger families than most of us have. And everyone would sleep in one room of the house, the room that they had, and they'd all sleep on mats, like right next to each other to stay warm because they didn't have air conditioning or heating. Not that it gets, you know, too cold in Palestine, but they just sit next to each other. And so when someone would come to the door after, after the daytime and the door had been closed, then People get upset because the kids were asleep, and if you got up, the whole family got up. And you know, when the kids get up, when they're young, it's just game over. Okay, it's tough to recover from that. And I'd be mad at somebody too who came to our house at midnight, right? But like, go to the store and get bread, right? But in this culture, they just make the bread for the day. And so this this friend has come to this guy's house, and he's knocked on the door, and he said, "Hey, I want to stay here." And the guy's like, "Love for you to stay here. I have no bread." And in the first century, hospitality was so huge that if you didn't have bread, you were being not just rude, but it was a massive offense against you. And so he's like, wait, wait, I know my friend down the road has some bread. I saw him begging it today. He may have enough. I'll go get his bread. So this guy, you know, sends the guy in. Hey, sit here. I will get some more bread. And he's like, hey, I need some bread. And the guy's like, go away. My kids are asleep. I'm asleep. I just want some shut eye. What is wrong with you? And the guy just keeps talking, right? And finally, I love what Jesus says. He's like, it's not because they were friends. They were friends that the guy gave him bread. It's because the guy was so rude, basically. That's shameless audacity. The point of the parable is, is this. It's, it is a contrasting parable, right? A parable literally means to lay aside something, that, like you lay two things next to each other. And oftentimes parables are, are comparisons, they're similar. This one is not, right? The point of the parable is not that God is like the guy sleeping with the kids, you know? I'm reading it this week. I'm like, wait, is God, the, is Jesus at the door? And who is, and then you're just reading people wise to me. They're like, the point of the parable is that God is not like the man who is sleeping, God never sleeps. God does not tire of you asking for him. And because of your audacity and because of your friendship with God, he will generously give you not just bread, but anything you ask of him. So the parable highlights how different these things are. And so when you understand that, that God longs to give you things, God longs to provide for things in your life, you see, well, this is not like God at all. And that's the point of the parable. God is not like that. Even though some of us may think that God is asleep and like that, he's not like that. And so then Jesus follows it up and he says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Now, this does not mean, hear me, that if you want a new boat and you pray for it three times a day, it will happen. 
that is not from the gospel, okay? That is not, no, it's financial blessing, maybe, maybe not, probably not, <laughs> right? It's not that if we pray this or say these words or believe hard enough, then this thing won't happen, right? That is not what God is saying here. Seek and knock, and whatever you want will be provided for you, right? The promise in prayer is not that God will provide whatever we want. It will be that he will become all that we want in our prayer. Right? This is a very big difference because oftentimes we just pray to God to get things from God. No, no, God says, pray to me to get me. And if I give you other things, great. But the point of prayer is encountering a person, not just to ask God for things like he's Santa Claus because that's not who God is. At the end here, I love, we get back to the father metaphor here. Verse 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Jesus is once again being ridiculous in a sense. He's like, nobody will do that, right? No one will, if he, if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. No father will do that. But maybe what the son needs is not an egg. And maybe he needs something else. Listen. The thing that's changed my life more than anything else, the belief that has shaped my prayer life and my life just uh, as a Christ follower is this simple fact, profound but simple, that God is good. There it is. That is the secret. <laughs> now I make it through everything, right? God is good. And everything that God is doing in your life is for a good purpose in the end. And if you and I would just walk by faith and pray to him and trust in him, we would see that everything God is doing is for a good purpose in the end. Because he is not like the man who is asleep. He is awake and he longs to give good gifts to his children. He will answer every one of your prayer requests. Every single one. But oftentimes not in the way that you would like. Because he knows far more than you what you need. John Calvin, as always, he says... Um, he says, God does not always answer our prayers as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. You have no idea what God knows. We think we know because we see some things, right? It's like if my 14-month-old daughters began to pray to me and ask me for everything they think they need based on where they are in life right now. They have no idea. Juice, cartoons, and goldfish. This is all I need my whole life, Dad. Thank you for providing it for me. Right? This is all that I need. And I would be like, no. And sometimes I withhold things from them, not because I don't love them, but because I do. Everything that God permits in your life and everything that God withholds from your life is for a good purpose in the end. And the best gift he could ever give you, he's given you in the spirit. Jesus is God with us. The Holy Spirit is God in us. What could be more profound than that? The spirit of God dwelling within us by faith. In fact, at the end of Luke, this is what it says. If you then know you are evil, meaning you aren't even close to as loving and caring as God is, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And by faith in Christ, you and I have received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit living inside of us is the one who helps us pray. It's the one greater within us who helps us figure out how to even do this whole prayer thing. Remind us of how good God is. Paul says this in Romans. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, which I love that Paul said that. He was like, I don't know what I'm doing either. This is so hard. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us, right? Connects to us through wordless groans. That's a good description of prayer. 
And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, good things, bad things, suffering, pain, disease, financial collapse, all things, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. C.S. Lewis says, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. The greatest gift God could ever give you is salvation and the spirit who lives within you. And he's given you both. Why do we doubt? Why do we wonder? Because we don't pray. Because we aren't tapped into who God is. And so there are a thousand books I could recommend to you about prayer. Let me just recommend one. It's called the Bible. You want to supercharge your prayer life? Immerse yourself in this book, right? People are sometimes saying, I, got, I, want, to, RD, I want to hear God speak to me. Can, can you help me hear God speak to me? And I just want to say, God has spoken to you. This is how God has spoken to you. This is how God has revealed who he is to you right, right here. We don't need anything else. And yet in God's grace, he sometimes reveals even more to us. This is the living word of God that speaks to you. Prayer is not just praying in the dark to someone we don't know. It's praying in response to a God that we do know. What he has said, what he has done, what he will do. It's groaning. I love what Paul says. He's like, Paul the Apostle, like, I'm not even sure what I'm doing half the time. But thank God the Spirit lives in me and helps me and intercedes for me. I'm groaning and longing. And Paul knew suffering like no one knows. And he kept Praying to God because he trusted that everything in his life was for a good purpose in the end. I know for many of us, prayer is a duty, right? When you hear prayer, you just feel guilty, right? You feel nervous. Like we talk about money, you just get nervous. I know I should give more. I know I should be more free. I know I should pray more. I pray before meals sometimes. I pray at Thanksgiving. You know, I try and have an impressive prayer. You know, the people that I know are prayer warriors, right? So they can feel like, oh, he's a real Christian. He or she prays, right? I, I know, you all, we all have, right? We all want to learn how to pray more. But for many of us, it just feels like a duty. It feels like we got to check this thing. I pray today. I went to church today. I want God to help me with this in my life. Wonderful and good. Right? When I was in high school and, and college, my dad would call like every day. And he'd call, and I'd be like, Dad, you called yesterday. Literally nothing has changed. I, I have a very boring life as a 20-year-old. I don't. Like, I went to class. I went to class today, Dad, if that's why you're calling. Like, and I don't know what else you want, like, me to say. And he just wanted to talk with me. But I just wanted to talk with him if I needed something, right? And so I'd go to him and be like, Dad, hey, can you hook me up with some money, <laughs> right? Give me some advice. Maybe you want to come down and take me out to dinner, right? And I didn't, didn't mean I didn't love my dad. I did love my dad. But our relationship for many years was just me wanting to get things from him. And this is how we approach many of us prayer. We don't dislike God. We don't not love God. But we just kind of pray as this thing that we have to do. And we're motivated by guilt or by this message or just by whatever. It wasn't until a few years ago that I just had God change my heart. And I began to actually call my dad just to talk with him. And just to enjoy the, the conversation that we would have together. Right? Because he was my dad. He was my father. And if we talked about something of substance, great. And if I asked him for something, so be it. But talking with my dad went from being a duty to being a delight because I just enjoy talking with him and not just asking him for things. See, if you're praying to God to get things from God, <laughs> that is not the point. We pray to God to get God. 
Because here's the deal. If you're praying, if you love God just because of the things he provides, then you love the things he provides, not him. And if he doesn't provide according to your script, you get bitter and angry. Because you thought, I thought this was how it's supposed to happen. And Jesus said, I laid it all out for you. Pray to God to encounter a person. Enjoy him. I know, I was, I was preaching on prayer this week, and I'm thinking, how am I supposed to preach on prayer? I, I was hoping like Thursday morning I'd have some massive prayer time that I could share with all of you and be like, oh, RD did it, so now we can do it. And it didn't happen. It's just like, it's like groaning in the dark. I'm like, I don't even know. And so I had moments where I prayed, and then, you know, we have two girls that are young, and my wife, and I'm working, and it's just chaos and busy. And you're like, I don't even have time to pray. I'm so distracted. How's, where can I actually go and pray? Like, I don't even know where. My phone's on, you know, get a prayer app on my phone, but then I start looking at Twitter and Facebook, so I'm not praying anymore. And so all these things are distracting me, like I want to pray, but then I just keep starting over in prayer. And yet Jesus says, keep knocking. Keep seeking, keep asking. I prayed every single day this week, and I confess I don't do that every week. I can tell you this. The first couple of days, I felt like, I don't think this even makes a difference, <laughs> and I want to preach on it. And by Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I didn't have a massive revelation. I didn't have the Holy Spirit just kind of blow up my heart. I wish. I've had it a few moments in my life, not a lot. But over the course of the last few days, I just felt God's presence. I felt like I was actually meeting with God. The first few days, I was saying, God, do this, God, do this, God, do this. And the last few days, I was just saying, God, would you speak to me? Right? I want to hear from you. I'll close with this quote from Frederick Buechner. He says, keep on beating the path of God's door. Because the one thing you can be sure of is that down the path you beat with even your most half-cocked and halting prayer, the God you call upon will finally come. Amen. And even if he does not bring you the answer you want, he will bring you himself. And maybe at the secret heart of all of our prayers, that is what we're really praying for. All we long for is him. And in prayer, we can meet him. Let's pray. Our Father. Our Father. Father, hallowed be your name. Would your name be holy among the nations? Would we keep the name that is on us, your name? Would we keep it holy in the way in which we live? Father, would your kingdom come on earth? Would V-Day come soon, Lord? And until then, would your church be about liberating people and saving people and rescuing people by your mercy alone? Father, would your kingdom come in Madison in our marriage? Would things in Madison be as they are in heaven? Would things in our marriage be as they are in heaven? Would things in our loneliness, in our wandering, and all of our doubts, God, would they be swallowed up by your kingdom? Father, give us each day bread that will never run out. Father, give us bread for the day and free us from fear that you will not be enough for us tomorrow. Father, help us to forgive everyone around us, not because they deserve it, but because you've sent us to them. And Father, lead us not into temptation. Would we never doubt that you're good and that everything you're doing is for a good purpose in the end. You've given us your son. You've given us the spirit. It's in their beautiful name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs>